Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. I was driving with my son Josiah a couple weeks ago. We were coming back from a trip. And we just started talking and he was asking me questions. And so I went through a journey to tell him a little more of my life. He's turning 15 in March. And uh, just, you know, part of that growing up. And so I was just reminiscing. One of the things we were talking about was work. And why I have the work ethic that I do. I came to Christ when I was 15 years old. And... I realized at the church that I was attending down in Petaluma, there was a a school attached to it, Petaluma Christian Academy. They had a small high school and it was within me to really want to grow in my relationship with Jesus. And so I switched from Petaluma High, uh, where if I would have stayed, Winona Ryder would have been my classmate and we would have certainly married. Um, But I left to, um, which would have been a wreck if you've ever seen her lately. Um, But uh, no, Stranger Things is really good. Um, And so... um, I don't, let me start over. Um, and so I, I went to that Christian school and in order to pay for the tuition, I started working at the school and I would stay every day for a couple hours after school. And I was a janitor. And if you've ever thought about being a 15, 16 year old high school guy, uh, working at the school you go to, it's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of humiliating, kind of humbling, but you know, it taught me a lot. I had done babysitting jobs. I'd done some part-time work here and there, but my first actual IRS type job, you know, where I had to report in and after school, I would vacuum, I would clean, you know, the chalkboards, whiteboards. I would mop the, the floors. I would clean the toilets and, uh, it, it taught me a lot. It taught me really good, strong work ethic. It taught me about humility. It taught me about working for God, not for myself. And not long after that, one of the guys in my church, he invited me over to his business. Dave had a five corners automotive, a mechanic shop that also had some gas pumps. He said, I need some young guys to pump gas. And he had just transitioned to a new location. And so I was one of those guys. He trained me how to pump gas. Now, the thing about Dave was he was amazing at customer service. He had a full service line and he had a self-service line. And if you Oregonians don't know what that is, you need to go to another state where you can actually be smart enough to pump your own gas and not hurt yourself. And, and yet Dave said it this way. He said, you know, it doesn't matter what line they come in. We serve everybody the same way. We treat everybody with full service mentality. And so he taught me how not just to pump the gas, uh, but to check the oil, 
to check the tires, to go around, to air up the tires if necessary, to wipe the windshields down, clean them up, use that squeegee to make it just the best possible and to have a conversation with that person. And I learned a lot by working for Dave. I remember one time it was raining and uh, I didn't wash the windshield because it was raining. You know, I'm just some kid. I'm not sure what's going on there. Why would you do that? He rushes out and lovingly scolds me and washes the windshield. It was kind of humbling for my boss to do my job for me. And he instructed me afterwards that, you know, it does help. It really does. And it shows our customers that we truly care about them. So I still wash windows in the rain. You know, I still do that. I'm teaching my boys to use a squeegee, you know, and to serve other people. And one of the things he also had me do was to clean the shop. And so I would, you know, when there were no gas customers, I'd go in and clean. We had three stalls that worked on cars, one that worked on tires. And so mechanics were there. Always cars were up on the lifts and they were doing their job. And my job was to provide a clean environment for them to do their job. So I was always wiping the tables down, the counters down, wiping the tools down, you know, rolling up hoses, things like that. My job was to make it good for them to do their job and safe for them to do their job. And uh, the boss's son, John, used to tease me. He's like, oh, Gleason's coming. Hydra tools. He's going to clean them, you know. But I took pride in that because I was working for other people. And uh, whether it meant cleaning the toilet out in the public restroom there in the gas station or just being available Uh, It was part of what I was learning as a young person. On Saturdays, it was my job to clean the shop. I went with another guy, Kip, and he and I would clean the floors. And after a week of working on cars, there was oil, there was grease, there was all kinds of stuff on the ground. And that's what we, we cleaned the whole day and prepared the shop for the next week of work. And I did learn a lot. I learned about humility. I learned about hard work. And I learned about the fact that when you work for God... The work that you do for others really matters and it makes a difference. Then I went to college and I went to Corbin University down in Salem when I moved here to Oregon in 83. And because I was part of work study in order to pay for college, you know, federal grants and loans and things like that, I worked. And the only job that was available for a little peon freshman like me was in the men's dorm as the custodian. And if you've ever thought of anything gross, it was worse. Freshman college guys are horrible. And especially when they're your friends and they know that you have to clean it up. And they made life miserable for my friend Mark and I as we were cleaning the floors and cleaning the toilets and cleaning the showers. But again, there was something within me that learned a lot by service. And so I was talking to Josiah about this and I said, I hope that you get a job doing some kind of service so that you can know what it's like to work hard, to work hard and maybe perhaps not even get any appreciation because of the work that you do, not to give any props. Everybody hands out trophies for everything these days, but to be the kind of person that works behind the scenes so the people out in front really get to do their job in a better way. And if you've ever, you know, heard some of the stories I've shared, one of the things I do with my boys is I teach them to say thank you to service providers because whether they're serving you coffee or whether they're attending to something at the table or whatever, whether they're cleaning up, whatever it is, people who do service jobs demand our respect and they deserve it. And we don't often show that to them, but we should always be saying thank you. We should be giving good tips. We should be honoring the people that are serving us. Because we're not any better than anybody else. We just have different roles and different positions. And one of the things that I also teach my boys is that when someone puts in a good hard day's work, that is reward enough. You don't need a pat on the back. You do the job because you're working for God. 
Now, my son will start working somewhere. I think he wants to work for Papa Murphy's, which I'm thankfully excited about because we'll get discounts or free pizzas. Who knows? Um, uh, but, but the fact is, is that when you do service work, it teaches you something. So let me ask you, how many of you have done or are doing some kind of service work? Uh, okay. All right. First of all, let me just figure this out. How many of you have, are doing or ever done custodial work, janitorial work? Okay. Excellent. All right. Good hard work. How many of you uh, have done any kind of waiting on tables? Okay, I don't know what your memory comes from, but I always, I forget my order, you know what I mean, by the time the person comes around. Thank you for that. Um, other kind of service work, what have you done? Raise your hand, shout it out. What's that? Caregiving. Caregiving. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What's that? Box boy. Yeah, exactly. Putting the cans away. Yeah, absolutely. There's something about really putting energy into something and knowing that even if you don't have to work as hard by working hard at it. You're serving and you're honoring God. I think about a couple people when I consider these thoughts. I think about Andy. Andy was the guy that showed up at our shelter, our homeless shelter, a number of years ago. And, you know, I go, I was here last night. I come a couple days during the week. I just kind of get to know some people here and there. And I watch and I listen and I hear stories. And I saw Andy one night and he was uh, sweeping the floor. And then the next time I showed up, he was mopping the floor. And so I struck up a conversation with Andy. Found out he was British, which excited me. Uh, found out he didn't like Doctor Who, which did not excite me at all. He was scared of Daleks as a kid. Um, but, but I started just to think, well, why are you doing this? You know, a, a lot of folks, you know, let me just be honest. A lot of folks are willing to receive, uh, but they're not willing to give back. But Andy was giving back. And it wasn't too long before when the shelter ended, we hired Andy to be one of our custodians. And the great thing about this guy was that as we got to know his story, there was a whole lot that he wanted to do, a lot of dreams, but he just kind of got waylaid along on the journey. He ends up going back to school. Uh, He ends up graduating uh, with a medical uh, degree. He ends up going and starting a practice in Colorado. And every once in a while when Andy shows up, it's just awesome to see him because he's a guy that I really respect and really admire. I think about Sarah. Sarah was a gal that was living in her car and she showed up to our homeless shelter. And she wasn't just going to be somebody that received. She was also somebody that served and somebody that gave. And so she starts serving and her niche was in food and helping with the service of food. And then she started plugging into our light my way. And she started really serving in a capacity that really lit her up. She ended up finding a place to live, getting a job. She ended up going to school. She wanted to be a counselor so she could help people who walk through the situations that she's walked through. And uh, it was just great to be able to see her fall in love with one of our Light My Way guys, to actually be the pastor that married them. It was exciting because I'd seen the journey of someone who wasn't just going to receive only, but to give and to give back. I think there are two kinds of people in the world, people who are givers and people who are takers, people who really at their core want to be served and end up letting people serve them or the kind of people that want to be served, but end up serving others instead. And that's that tension that we all face. Uh, We in the church, we think about it. As a pastor, I think about it. Uh, One of the rules I have here is if you're not willing to clean toilets, you don't have a job. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what your title is. You know, I clean vomit off the floor at times. I was thinking about one of our guys and, and he's working and he's helping out and, and helping in these ways. And I heard about a story. He just cleaned up the worst kind of mess without any complaint with joy. Because if you can do that, you can do anything in the kingdom of God. 
In fact, Jesus brings this very point up in our story in Matthew chapter 20. And so if you have your Bible, I'd ask you to turn to Matthew 20. We'll start in verse 17. It's page 750 in your chair Bible. And and Jesus is going to deal with this dilemma that you and I often face. Am I going to be served or am I going to step forward and serve other people? So Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. So this is kind of the setup for three and a half years. He's been doing ministry. He's been healing people. He's been teaching people. He's been feeding people. He's been doing wonderful things. The religious leaders, the ones that are out in the synagogues, the Pharisees, or the ones that are back in Jerusalem, the capital city of all things religious, uh, the Sadducees, the teachers of religious law, they're opposed to Jesus because he is going to disrupt their very system of religion and their power structure. And so they've already decided to kill Jesus. And so as Jesus goes up toward Jerusalem, this is the story. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he's coming from the Galilee up in the north and he's going there. He took the 12 disciples aside privately. So there, there are more people along this journey. Okay. We'll see that later on. There's, there's a, there's a whole group of disciples, but he pulls his 12 guys aside and tells them what's going to happen. This isn't the first time he's told them, but He's on the verge of doing it right now. He says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the son of man, that's himself. It's a messianic title from the book of Daniel about the Christ will be betrayed into the, by the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged and with a whip and crucified. The Jews didn't have the power to actually kill anyone. They would, you know, kind of get someone to the point of that, but they had to turn him over to the Romans. The Romans would actually do the execution. And that's what happened in the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus. The religious leaders handed him over. We'll see that in in time to come to be mocked, flogged with a whip and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. This is the gospel that Jesus goes to a cross, that he dies for us and that he rises again. That's the whole message. It's the whole purpose for Jesus coming. We think about Christmas, you know, we think about the presence, we think about the gifts, but the reality is Jesus comes in a humble way as a baby, completely dependent on other people. And as he grows up, as he discovers his purpose, as he sets out on that course and gathers disciples and teaches and loves people and serves people, he's headed toward this one encounter that will be the end of his earthly life, this physical life, this human life as he would experience it. And the beginning of what would one day be the glory and what would one day uh, in this picture be this crucifixion, death, this resurrection. So uh, it's kind of funny as you look ahead in the passage, you read ahead, you see that um, right on the heels of this, there's a little bit of an encounter. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with their sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. Now, the request is in your kingdom. Please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. So here's what's happening there. These guys had stood with Jesus now and they want to sit with Jesus later. Now, But here's the dilemma. They've already asked this question. And if you read the four gospels together, you know that James and John, the the two of the fishermen, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, uh, they have another name too, the sons of thunder. Okay. Which sounds really cool. If you ask me sons of thunder, sounds like troublemakers, you know, they have already come to Jesus and asked this question. And Jesus has reprimanded them for even thinking such a thing. And they didn't get the answer they wanted. And so Jesus 
is there and they send their mother to Jesus. Isn't that pretty pathetic if you ask me? I, I just love this idea. This mom has enough chutzpah to be able to go to Jesus and say, this is what I'm asking of you. I don't know if she initiated it. I don't know if they initiated it. But they had given up everything to follow Jesus. And they were expecting Jesus to go into Jerusalem, to ride in, to become the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's anointed by God, to take on the throne, to overthrow the Romans, and to lead the nation into freedom. To once again have a king like David and Solomon and Saul to sit on the throne. And they wanted to be right there sitting on thrones next to Jesus. And that was in their heart. And they didn't get it. And so their mom went to ask the question, could it happen? All right, I think that's kind of what we do sometimes. You know, we, we ride along with Jesus for what we might get. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to people, you know, who are deeply disappointed in God. But, but I've gone to church and I prayed my prayers and I read my Bible and God owes me this. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. God isn't here for us. God doesn't exist so that he can serve us in our moment of need. I mean, he often does serve us. He loves us and he shows up. But he's God. He's creator. We're servants. We're the creation. And it's easy for us to kind of expect, well, I've done all this. The journey I've walked with Jesus. Therefore, God, I'm disappointed if you don't deliver for me. So Jesus uh, begins to go into a teaching, but uh, the whole impetus for the teaching is that his, the disciples, the rest of the disciples, hear about the story. Look what it says. Jesus answered them by saying, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Uh, the, the whole idea of a bitter cup of suffering, it's an idiom for an experience. We celebrate communion every weekend. And on the sides and the backs and the front, we have this little piece of bread, this little cup. And the Bible says that uh, Jesus went to a table where he celebrated a Passover meal and he had a cup. And he celebrated that and said, this cup is the new covenant. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus metaphorically looks into a cup of suffering. And there's so much pain that he sees ahead of him that he cries out to the father. If it's possible, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. The Jewish people today even still celebrate with a cup. They remember their suffering as a nation, as a race of people, whether it's on Sabbath, on Shabbat, or whether it's on one of the high and holy days, they raise a glass of wine, a cup to symbolize we're in this together. And Jesus says, you know, you're asking this question but I don't think you understand what's going to actually happen. Are you able to drink this bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Well, they just respond with, of course we are. We're able without really understanding. He says, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. The text goes on to say, when the ten of their disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They were angry. They were just upset. And, and you would be too, right? I mean, aren't we the twelve? Didn't Jesus call all of us? And why do you two think that you deserve a better place than us? The right or the left were places of honor. If the, the person sitting on the throne were gone, the person on the right or the left could make the decisions. The person on the right or left would carry out the orders of the person sitting on the throne. Who do you think you are to be in that place or upset? But Jesus calls them together and says, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people. 
They, they rule with an iron fist. You know, Jesus says, that when someone achieves power, it corrupts them. You know that someone achieves a position and then it twists their heart. You know that people strive for something because there's an inner compulsion to rule. It works in third world countries, <laughs> works in Washington, D.C., right? It works in school boards. It works in homeowners associations, right? And it also works in churches. That people strive for a position. They try to play king of the mountain. And they get to the top of something. So that they can have power and authority to make decisions. That's how the world works. We play king of the mountain. We build our business on the backs of other people. That's what we do as humanity. We climb over people to get to the position that we want. And we will use and abuse anyone to get to the place that we think is the place of premier excellence. That's what we do as humanity. And Jesus says, that's how the world works. But that's not how you're supposed to work. In the kingdom of God, it's supposed to be completely different. But among you will be different. And here's what Jesus says. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, as I was reading this, I was looking at this and just highlighting some words. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Look at this. Jesus says, if you want to be a leader, then you must be a servant. I, I was uh, thinking about this and there's a whole lot written on servant leadership today. And so I was just searching for it and everybody points back to this one journal article that was written in about 1970. And they keep saying the first occurrence of the idea of servant leader showed up in 1970, which I laugh because I think it showed up 2000 years before that in the ministry of Jesus. But the idea of a servant leader, it seems like an oxymoron. Because if you're going to lead, you're strong, you're bold, you're daring, you do whatever it takes to get there. But if you're going to be a servant, oh, you know, nobody pays attention to a servant, right? Nobody cares for a servant. The spotlight's not on the servant. The spotlight's on the leader. And Jesus says, if you want to be a leader, you must be a servant. And if you want to be first, you must be your slave, a slave. For even Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve others. And there's the tension. Do we want to lead? Which is fine. Which is great. Leading is a wonderful place. If you're called to be a leader, be a leader. But in leading, remember who you're working for. You're not working for yourself. You're working for the people you're leading. And the people that follow you, the people that work for you, think about your business. Think about your, your family and the way the dynamics work. You think about your neighborhood. You think about school or whatever it might be. There's all kinds of hierarchy. There are people that stand up in front and do a job and people that go behind the scenes and do a job. If you're called to be in front and do a job, that's great. That's not a problem as long as your heart's fine. Because if your heart's good, you're going to be a great leader. But if your heart's wrong, you're going to want to lead for yourself versus leading for others. It's not bad to be in the front of the line. It really isn't. But just remember that if you're in the front of the line, you exist for the people in the back of the line. That's the whole reason God has put you in the front of the line. You may think that you've clawed your way to the front of the line, that you've worked your way, you've earned your way to the front of the line, and you can feel justified in that. But the reality is God has put you there, and he's allowed you to get there so that the people behind you have a place to go, have a person to go to. And if you really, truly, in your heart, want to be served, that's normal. That's natural. 
You know, we all want someone to think about us and put us first. But in order for that to really work, we have to think about others before we think about ourselves. We have to put them first. And so I was reading about this and thinking about this. And one of my favorite business books about servant leadership is called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Written a number of years ago. It's a a really good book. He surveys over a thousand companies, narrows it down to just over ten. And he looks at these companies that have existed and have endured for years. And one of the key common denominators is the person who's ultimately in charge. The leader, the CEO. And Jim Collins has a term called level five leader. And what he ends up saying is this person who leads the greatest companies is the most humble of all the people. This person knows their position. They know their power, but they don't exercise it for themselves. They serve other people. I thought, well, that's exactly what Jesus said. That's exactly what Jesus said we should be doing. And if the business world picks up on the principles of Jesus, I'm good with that. If our politicians pick up on the principles of Jesus, I'm awesome with that. Okay, right? If those of us in the church pick up on the principles of Jesus, we better do that because that's the very heartbeat of the one we follow. And in business principles, Jesus inverts the pyramid. This is what the pyramid normally looks like. You got a boss at the top. The employees work for the boss. You know, truly to be honest and be crass, the customers exist for the business. I mean, that's not normally what we think about or the customers think about, but people in business do their prep planning and processing to get more money uh, because the bottom line is the investors, the people that ultimately make the decisions. And this is how the business world works. And Jesus flips that around. He inverts it. And I I put it in the the term of, of a church. We as a staff, those of us that are pastors and staff, we exist to serve the servants of the church. Those that lead small groups, those that serve on the weekend, those that serve in some kind of ministry or lead ministries. Our whole point is to exist for those people. A number of, number of years ago, a guy was sitting in a car talking to me about something. He says, you know, um, here's, here's what I like about you, James. And I thought he was going to talk about my good looks and my intelligent ability and my wit. And it's nine o'clock, people. We need to wake up. I'm joking. Um, <clears throat> and he said, he said um, you greased my wheels. I said, what? He said, you make it easy for me to serve. You resource me. And I go, that's, that's what I love doing. I love making it possible for you to do your job well. In fact, that's what I'm called to do. I'm called to equip you to do your job and to release you to do it. And that's what we as staff exist for because we serve the body of Christ. We serve the church. We serve you. We're here so that you can come and you can serve and you can grow and you can lead and you can do all these things that we talk about on the weekends. And then we as a church, as a congregation, exist for the world around us. That's just how Jesus flowed. And that's how as a church we flow. I know in our hearts sometimes we want to flow this way. We want to lead something. And and we see it not in the good times, but in the tense times when things don't go our way. That's when the revelation happens, when the truth is revealed about our motives. But when push comes to shove, we should be this kind of person. I mean, think about this. If you're leading a family, moms and dads, I know, I know you're leading. I know you're working. I know you're out there. But you exist so your family exists. If you're leading a company or you're part of a division that's leading a company, here you are. You exist and you've been given great responsibility. But you know that you'd have that so that other people succeed. Not so that you get a plaque. Not so that your name gets put on something. Not so that you get a picture down the hallway. But so that other people do that. We exist in the body of Christ so that people see Jesus in us. And when it 
really is shown is when we stop and do the work of a servant. When we stop and we serve people and do the dirty work, that's when the community really sees us showing up. Uh, Pastor Clifford and I were in a meeting a week or so ago and we were uh, in, in Department of Corrections and we're Washington County. We're hanging out there and we're around a table and uh, this guy who's pretty, pretty high up um, was talking to us about an opportunity and it was pretty exciting to us and, you know, really forward thinking. Um, but he said this and I, I've heard this a fair number of times. He said, you know, whenever we hear uh, in the county in this Department of Corrections, when we think about Sunrise Church and when something shows up, we talk about Sunrise. We're always sharing how thankful we are that Sunrise exists because you make us do our job well. And we couldn't do our job without you. And that humbles me to hear that. But all that really comes about because just normal people in the body of Christ at Sunrise serve. And we go out and love people and we serve. Um, more than a year ago, our, our coordinators, our volunteer coordinators that work at the school district, um, Kate and Colleen, we went to a, an award. Those are kind of awkward always, you know. And so we went there and received an award for the church. And I, you know, I kind of feel stupid and things like that. But um, the school board said, thank you. You make our job easier. We couldn't do some of the things that we do if it weren't for Sunrise Church. And I'm just floored by that. But that's not because of me. That's because of you. Because we fan out in the community and we seek to serve, not to be served. We seek to share the love of Christ, not to reach out and grab what we can give. And I'll just be honest, it's not like that in a lot of churches. In many churches, it's about power. It's about entitlement. It's about authority. It's about rights. And I never want that to be a part of our heart. This, my friends, is the DNA of Sunrise Church. That every one of us will stop and we'll grab a broom and every one of us would grab a mop and every one of us would do the dirty work because that's where life is found because that's where Jesus showed up in the dirtiest place. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul says. It's beautiful. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take on the interests of others too. That, that's, that's a great set of verses to memorize right there. Those three and a half lines. That would be amazing if in 2017, we all committed this to memory and we just said, this is what we're going to do. I don't want to be selfish. I mean, imagine if you woke up and you said, okay, God, my desire today is I don't want to be selfish. God, I don't want to try to impress others. It's not about me. I want to be humble. God, give me opportunities to be humble. God, I want to think of others as better than myself. Give me a situation today where I can put other people first. And in my heart, may I think of them first before I think of my own needs. God, I don't want to only look out after the things that I have, but I want to look out to others too. Why? Because the Apostle Paul says this is the same attitude that Jesus had. This is the very heartbeat of Jesus. It's not being selfish, but being humble. And this is exhibited when Jesus actually came down. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He didn't grasp onto his throne in heaven, as it were. And all the beauty and pleasures, which you can't even imagine, that Jesus himself experienced in heaven. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Theologians call this the emptying, where Jesus emptied himself of all the, the rights of God and was born as a baby. 
completely dependent upon other people. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. God in the flesh. He took on our flesh. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself again in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So not only did God humble himself to come and be part of us, he humbled himself further and went to a cross to die our death. And on that cross, as he was on that cross, bearing the weight of the world, carrying your sin and shame, as what Jesus said, he was a ransom for many. He paid the price that we could not pay. The Bible has this picture and the Bible describes this, this vision that you and I are all born as slaves, completely serving sin. And as we're slaves to sin, we just do that act. We sin. That's what we do. We're slaves to it. We don't have an option. Maybe we can work ourselves into a better position, but ultimately we're slaves to sin. And the picture is that we're out on the slave market and we're there. We're being sold and sin is our master and we are a slave to sin. And Jesus shows up and he pays the ransom price and he redeems us and he purchases us out of the slave market of sin and calls us his son or calls us his daughter. And he now frees us from the bondage of sin, the pain of sin, the punishment of sin. He takes it on himself. And that's the picture of what Jesus did on the cross. He ransomed us. Now he didn't have to do that. He wasn't desperate to do that, but he looked to you and he looked to me And with incredible love, he willingly humbled himself. When we didn't deserve it, when we fought him every chance and every opportunity, when we denied him, when we despised him, even on that cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the bottom line for you and for me wraps up for me in a couple questions. One, I mean, have you responded to the ransom of Jesus? Have have you been ransomed from your sin? My hope is not that people come to sunrise. I don't want people coming to church. I want people coming to Christ. I want people who don't just come and go, well, I did my brownie point. I mean, listen, God, this must be cool. I came in the snow. You've got to be smiling now, right? You know, I endured the nine o'clock service. I mean, look at all those people. They're asleep. I can't believe it. This is extra for me. I get extra points. I don't even have to go for two weeks church now, right? I mean, you know how I picked up garbage on the way and you know how I did this? It's like, no, that's not how life works. That's not how you get into a relationship with God. It's not how you receive honor from God. You're called a son or daughter because he's purchased you out and he's bought you and adopted you into his family. If you've received him, the Bible says this is how it works. Paul, the apostle Paul says this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it means he's your, your boss. If you confess, if you say those words, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he's your savior, then you're saved. It's not some magical experience in the sense that you do four or five things in a certain order. It's just you make that decision. Today is the day I'm going to follow and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. You confess him as Lord. You believe in your heart that he's your savior. You are saved, the Bible says. And you now have a new Lord, a new master, and God comes inside of you and dwells inside of you. He puts his spirit inside of you to change you, to be more like the servant Jesus himself. You have to start there. Secondly, though, for the rest of us, I may be the majority. Are you here to serve others? Are you a servant leader? Servant leaders lead boldly. 
but they also love dearly. I was talking with my friend John, I shared this last week, but uh, at Starbucks about his new job and position back east on the east coast. And he's got these dreams and plans, which I think are awesome. But, I, you know, I just reminded him, hey, you're just a young guy and you're going to go in there. And the church is a very young church for New England. It's 100 years old and everybody's born and they're going to die there. And you're just a newcomer. So don't don't impress them with your plans. Nobody cares. Love them. Just love them. Just spend a couple years just getting to know them. Lead through loving them. Is that how you lead? Do you lead boldly but lead through love? Servant leaders take responsibility but don't take the credit. They're more concerned about people excelling than their name showing up somewhere. Servant leaders stand at the front of the line not to be first, but to open the door so others can go in first. I know there's always this twinge, this moment in our heart when we want someone to think about us. That's natural. But when we think about somebody else, that's supernatural. When we consider others as better than ourselves, that's like Jesus. And that's Jesus showing up in us. And when Jesus shows up in us like that, when he shows up in ways where nobody sees, nobody shines the light on us, but we just love and we just serve with all our heart, knowing that there's a God in heaven that sees it. That's when we do our work under the Lord. And that's when he honors us. And that's when we're like him. And that's our heartbeat as a church. Our heartbeat of the church is that we exist to serve each other and we exist to serve the community around us. Now, I know we're probably going to struggle because nobody's going to want to go through the door first as we leave. Everybody's going to want to open the door and we're all going to fight to open the door. And I get all that. You can figure out how, how that works. But my prayer as your pastor would be, let's put other people first. Let's not be the kind of people that take. But let's be the kind of people that give and God will richly provide everything we need. When we consider others first.